right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 19, where basically God had instructed Moses to prepare the people to meet him at Mount Sinai. Now, the people had arrived at Mount Sinai after three months of journeying uh, from the land of Egypt. And now they are in Mount Oreb. Also remember, Mount Oreb, same as Mount Sinai. And they are now being brought into a covenant relationship with God. So God instructs Moses to prepare the people. And, they, and what we see is basically a ceremonial preparedness with respect to God's holiness. In other words, the people need to understand that they are about to meet a holy God. And so therefore they are to prepare themselves in the sense of holiness or cleansing or the sense of being separated from common things. And you'll see that even when Moses says to the men, do not have sexual relations with your wives for three days. So the idea is as God is holy, the people are therefore to separate, sanctify or make holy themselves. So in three days, God came up on the mountain in great, if you allow me to say, pomp and circumstance. There was thunderings and lightnings and earthquake and the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet blowing louder and louder in the sense of calling the people to assemble before the mountain. And so in great, uh, I, I don't know the word, but in great display of power, God showed himself and he began to speak unto the people. And so, but before he began to speak, he called Moses again up to the mountain to give him warnings once again to tell the people, do not try to break through the bounds that have been set and gaze upon the Lord and try to look upon the Lord for in doing so, many of them will die. Not a person nor an animal is to go beyond that boundary that was set at the mountain. And so with that, we are prepared now for God to begin to speak in chapter 20. But before we get into chapter 20, you have to realize as we get into what is commonly known as the Ten Commandments, do not lose sight or focus, turn on the theater of your mind, of all of the things that are taking place, that is, the earth is trembling and shaking violently, thunder and lightning, and the mount of God is on fire and smoke. So don't lose sight of all of that as the people are listening to the voice of God as God has come down upon Mount Sinai. Okay. Now, with all of that, we get into chapter 20. Now, in chapter 20, we basically have what is referred to as the Ten Commandments or the Ten, actually in Hebrew, I believe it's in the book of Deuteronomy, it is called the Ten Words. And so the Ten Commandments we will see is basically the principal words of the covenant. Now, and we can also understand it as the beginning words of the covenant. The reason why we call it both the principal words of the covenant is because it will be from these 10 words or these 10 commandments that God would develop. He would give further laws, further commandments. He would develop each one of them with further laws and further commandments. So as we read through 
all of the 613 commandments of Moses that are given, that are distributed throughout the book of Exodus up until the book to the end of Deuteronomy. As we read all of those 613 commandments, it is from these 10 principal laws that God further develops it. So in a sense, just for example, and I don't want to get too much into it to, to make this long. When he says, do not commit adultery. Then later on, you'll see he'll talk about sexual laws in the book of Leviticus in 18, chapter 18 and chapter 20. So there'll be further expansion of these laws. And so that's why we say these are the principal commandments, these 10 that will be further expanded in the covenant laws of Moses. Okay. So these are principal commandments that God has given to Moses. These become the 10, but they are just the beginning. They are the first 10 of 613 laws that will be given in totality. All right. So without getting into that any further, let's just get into chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So he begins with what is called, what is understood as a suzerain coven, co I'm sorry, suzerain covenant. That is a, a Lord slash vassal covenant, a suzerain covenant. This was something that was very familiar to the people of Israel at that time, say for say a particular king or Lord would, would bring a people into a covenant agreement. And what he would do is basically introduce himself. And in the introduction of himself, it would also be an indication of something that he has done on behalf of the people. And then he would have an expectation of the people to respond to him in a covenant agreement. That is, he would simply say, I am this king and I have done this and that for you. And therefore I expect you to do this and that towards me. And as long as you do these things towards me, I will always do these things towards you. So therefore, even as God is speaking from Mount Sinai, he is speaking in a way that the people will understand it, that they that he himself is their Lord. And also they themselves are the vassal. And when we say the vassal, that means the subject to this Lord. So he is bringing them into a covenantal agreement in a way that is familiar to them. So that's what you need to see it on the aspect. OK, so he begins to say, I am Yahweh, your God. So God introduces himself to the people of Israel by virtue of his personal covenantal name. And I don't even have to go into a lot of details with on this because it speaks for itself. God uses his personal covenantal name because he is entering into a covenantal agreement with the people of Israel. And then he states, as we talked about earlier in the Lord vassal treaty, he states that thing that he has already done for them. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
from the household of slaves, from the house of bondage, as is sometimes uh, translated. So he says, this is the thing that I have done for you. And they can reflect all the way back until Moses coming, returning back into Egypt, going before Pharaoh and displaying through those 10 plagues, the power of God. And even as he brought them out of Egypt, how he said earlier, he led them on eagles wings. He bore them on eagles wings, how he provided for them on their way towards the mountain and even protected them from the army of Pharaoh. So all of this is inclusive in that idea of God saying to them, this is what I've already done for you. Now, therefore, what remains of this covenantal treaty is what he expects, the king expects from the vassal, okay? And so now we, he goes into verse number three and he simply says, predicated upon this, that I am Yahweh, your God. And the sense, assumptive sense, I alone am your God, so therefore, what? You shall have no other gods before me. And that also can be understood in the sense as you shall have no other gods besides me. So therefore, the first commandment that God gives them is the commandment against idolatry. Now, and as we look at these first four commandments of God, I believe it's the first four. They are all predicated in the, if you read it in Hebrew, it would simply say low. So they are negative prohibitions. In other words, God is saying, no, forever you cannot do this. And I don't want to get into a whole lot of details on Hebrew grammar, but that is the meaning of the word low. It is a permanent prohibition. You are never to have any other gods besides me. Okay. And so now let's simply continue with the giving of the commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God continues to speak and he simply says, do not make any type of graven image, any type of idol, whether big or small or anything of the likeness, or even a Tephilim, which is a household God. We saw that in the book of Genesis, when we saw Rachel stealing the Tephilim of her father. But nevertheless, this is prohibited now in the commandments that God has given to Moses, to the people of Israel. No idolatrous imagery whatsoever. No. And also too, no light in this too. God is simply saying no idol, no idols whatsoever, because he's already said what? No other gods besides me. So therefore, you don't have any other God and you don't make any images of those gods. In assumption to all of this is no images of those gods and no images of God himself. Do you understand that? No likenesses of any images of God himself. 
Now, this is what we're going to see will be the first one of the first great sins of the nation when they make that is through Aaron. Aaron will make an image to Yahweh. Aaron, we're going to see later on when Moses goes up to the mount for 40 days and he's going to be there for 40 days. And they're going to say, we don't know what happened to Moses. They're going to say to Aaron, make us an image, make us gods to go before us. The people are not saying make us an image to an idol God, a God that we don't know. They are saying make us an image to Yahweh, a visible representation to Yahweh himself, of Yahweh himself. Okay, so here what God is commanding is do not make images of God, of any idol God or of God himself. And don't make those images of a likeness of things in the heavens or of a likeness of things on the earth. So no idols whatsoever. And then he begins to say, because there is, there is never to be any worship of any idol gods because God declares himself to be a jealous God. In other words, God says that I am yours and you are mine. And therefore we can see in a sense of marriage. And I don't want to get into all of that, but we can see a sense of marriage between God and his people, because later on, God is going to give a certain particular law concerning the law of jealousy concerning a husband and his wife. And this would be a derivative of that. In other words, as God is a husband to his people and he is jealous that she has no other God, a man also can have a jealousy toward his wife and he would be jealous that she should have no other man. But anyway, that's the principle that is being set forth here, that God himself is a jealous God and therefore he will not permit the worship of any other gods besides himself, nor the cre creating or making of any other images. Okay, let's continue. Seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Okay, before I get to that verse, let me go back because I need to complete the commentary because God sets forth a divine principle in verse number five and six. When he says, if you, if you engage in idolatry in any way, worshiping in other gods, making images that God will not leave such people unpunished. That is the iniquity that God would, God would punish those people who break his commandments, specifically here, the commandment of idolatry, even to the third and fourth generations. That is, the, he's speaking of not only duration, duration is the people who broke those commandments, you got it? Who broke the commandment of idolatry. That generation, the second generation, the third generation, the fourth generation. So God's punishment will extend for a great length of time, but it extends primarily to those who hate God. And the idea of those who hate God is those who don't keep his commandment. Simply what? If you love me, as Jesus said, you keep 
my commandment. So those who do not keep the commandment, the covenantal laws of Moses fall under the judgment of God, even up until the fourth generation, the fourth generation of those God hating people. But nevertheless, even in this duration that I was just talking about, first, second, third, fourth generation, even into that generation of punishment up until the nation for those who do love God and keep God's commandment, he still keeps, preserves and blesses them. That's why he says, showing mercy to those who love me. Even in judgment, even in the judgment of the nation, God always preserves a mercy for those who love him. Okay. And I don't want to get into great details in that. Now we get into verse number seven, when he talks about taking the name of God in vain. What he means is to use God's name in an empty way, in a way that does not glorify or magnify God, in a way that empties God of his holiness or does not recognize God for being holy. And I think I need to give an example so you can understand this. In the law of Moses, not for us today, notice what I said. In the law of Moses, the people of Israel could swear it was permissible to swear by God's name. And they can also take an oath by God's name. That is, they could use the name, the covenantal name of Yahweh to simply uh, to give strict, to give weight to something that they are declaring that they would do. So in the name of Yahweh, so by God's name, and as they would may raise their right hand, by God's name, I would do this. So this would give weight to whatever thing that they are speaking of because they are using the holy name of God. So therefore, whenever they would begin to apply God's name, Always use it with the sense of reverence and reverence toward God. So therefore, whatever you are speaking, the thing that you will do, be sure to do it. Why? Because you are using, you are attaching God's name to that. Now, in our time under Christ, we don't use God's name at all. And we find this in the book of James when it simply says, do not take, do not swear. That is to swear by God's name. Don't swear by anything that is in heaven. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. So this is not so much applicable to us. We just simply say yes and no. We are to be truthful to our word without using the name of God. Okay. Continuing verse number eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, now we see the ordinance of the Sabbath being set. Now, remember earlier I told you, what was this, chapter 16, I believe it was, 
we saw the principle of the Sabbath being set. That is, remember, it was dealing with the issue of the gathering of the manna. When God caused the manna to fall to the earth and he told the children of Israel for six days, they should gather the manna. But on the sixth day, they should um, they should gather manna as much as each individual should eat on the set on the sixth day. They should gather a double portion of what a person should eat because on the seventh day they were prohibited from gathering any manna. On the seventh day, they were not to go out to gather manna at all. They were not to go outside of their tents. It was to be a day of rest. So this was the principal giving of the Sabbath. But now here is the covenantal giving. This is the ordinance of the Sabbath. That is, it is now being instituted in the law itself. Okay, so understand it now. And that's all I'm going to say on that. But anyway, so God says, honor the Sabbath, set the Sabbath apart. And whenever we see that sense of of holy Kaddish, remember, that's the idea to be set apart, to be made holy, to be made different from the rest of the days. And that's what God is saying about the seventh day. It is to be different from the six days. So therefore no work is to be done on the Sabbath day whatsoever. And basically he gives an all inclusiveness for the nation. No matter who is in the nation, you, your sons, your daughters, or even a stranger that's dwelling with you, or even if it's a slave, no one is to do any work or even an amp, the animals itself, no one and nothing is to do any work on the Sabbath day. Everything is supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. So as to the people of Israel, they are to regard the Sabbath day as a holy day in the sense of resting. Now, God is not saying here in particular of any particular activity to do. He is not giving them any stated activity to do. He is simply saying for them to regard the seventh day as a separate day. Remember, that's the whole part of being, I was trying to explain to you earlier, Kaddish, holy, separate, different from the other days. So regard it in a sense of holiness without simply telling them what any activity to do. And he says this itself is based on, that is the idea of rest, the idea of resting on the Sabbath day, this is based on God's activity in creation because we see in Genesis one and two, what the six days God took to create the heavens and the earth. And we, and I'm not getting into the, I was almost tempted to get into greater detail about that, but nevertheless, the six days of God's creative work. And then on the seventh day, chapter two of Genesis, God rested from all that he had done. And so in respect to God's resting on the seventh day, he now gives them this ordinance. You too now rest uh, in memorial to God's rest. Now, there are many things, a great discussion that we can have on the Sabbath day. But the only thing that I'll say at this point, only thing that I'll say is, 
This is this institution is given to Israel as a memorial to continually look forward, continually look forward. So every it is a cycle every seventh day of resting. I'm looking forward to what as the writer of Hebrews say, there remains a rest unto the people of God to continue to look forward to the eternal rest that we will have not only in Messiah Jesus, but the rest that the Messiah Jesus will give us. That is the rest of the millennial kingdom of God. Now I am not going to open that can of worms. So that's all I'm going to say about that until we get into the book of Hebrews. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the commandment concerning the Sabbath day setting it apart, distinct from the other days to have a sense of holiness, a regard for God on that day. And therefore it gives the people also refreshment different from what they had in the land of Egypt, because in the land of Egypt, they worked every day, every day they had no rest. All right. Continuing verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, in honoring the father of the mother, it gives the sense of respect, obedience, submission, and reverence. And the word reverence always denotes a sense of fear in respect. Okay? So he says this respect should be cardinally given to father and the, both the mom and the dad. And then he simply says, so that your days will be prolonged. Now, what he is not saying and what is commonly misused about this particular passage is, he is not giving this passage in an individual way. He is, and that is for one child, a child, to have respect and obedience toward the mother and the father. And if the child respects and obeys the mother and father, then the child's days of life will be increased. That is, do you understand that? His days of life will be increased or expanded. That's not what he is saying. He is saying that the basis for society, for my people, is that the child should honor the father and the mother. For if the child, the children should honor their parents in such a way, I will prolong the nation in the land of Canaan. You got it. If the children are obedient to parents, I will prolong the nation in the land, in the promised land. If the children become disobedient, then the people will be removed from the promised land. So that's what he means by notice what he says in the verse that your days will be prolonged, not of life, but what in the land that the Lord, your God is giving you. Okay. Next verse 13, you shall not murder. And here the, the idea is from the ver basic verb that simply means do not kill, but it is interpreted. You shall not murder. That means there should be no unlawful killing. Notice what I said, unlawful killing, because I've heard some people uh, 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 
uh, who want to say thou shall not kill. And they try to take the old te Old Testament command. Thou shall not kill. But later on in the very next chapter, God would say that if there, I believe the commandment, if there's a witch, kill him. And then you'll see further on in the covenant law. If a person sleeps a, a man with a man, put him to death. If a person should sleep with an animal, put him to death. So it doesn't mean that there should be no killing whatsoever. And that's why we have this translation. Thou shall not murder. That means unlawful killing and unlawful killing is to kill a person outside of the command of God. If God did not tell you to kill that person, then you have no right to put that person to death. And that's the idea that's coming here. Uh, 14, you shall not commit adultery. That speaks for itself. If a man sleeps with the wife of another man or a woman sleeps with a wife of a, uh, uh, with the husband of another man, whatever to sleep with a married individual, do not do that. Now, this is, as I just, as I told you guys earlier, remember, go all the way back to what I just said. These are the principal commands from which God would bring forth covenantal commands. That is, he is giving these basic commands in principal form. And then later on in the other laws that he will give later on, he will develop and expand these laws. So here we have the principal command of fornication. In the New Testament, it would simply be called pornea. It would simply be used as the umbrella word. So here we have an umbrella commandment, an umbrella word of pornea. That is the commandment against sexual sins. So this is not just simply restricting, say for instance, if you aren't married, you can just have sex all over the place. No, 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 no. This is God giving that umbrella commandment that deals with sexual sins. Later on, he will expand upon this commandment of adultery and what it all implies, not only husband and wives, but even all these other things, even bestiality and things of that nature. OK, and that's what I mean by principle form. You shall not steal. And that's basically the idea of respecting the property of other people. Do not steal from anybody. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. And that is to simply speak evil. That is to speak evil in lying against your neighbor, to give a false testimony concerning something about your neighbor. And so we can also see that these things deal with a lack of love. Now, let me pause here while I've been dealing with these things and go back and you'll notice that the first section that the, the, this Decalogue is basically divided into two parts. And like the first basic four commandments deal with a reverence or commandments towards God. That is the love of God. And we see this being spoken by Jesus when Jesus simply says, and they the come into Jesus testing him saying, what is the great commandments and things like this nature? And Jesus was simply saying, okay, love the Lord your God, all your heart and all, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. And then we'll see Jesus teaching a furtherance of these things that what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And then he would say, 
love your neighbor as yourself. What am I trying to say in the 10 commandments that we see here in this? And I don't want to use the term division, but it can be understood and seen in a division. One, that which pertains to God, all those first commandments up until the Sabbath day, those things that pertain to the worship of God. It deals with the love of God. And then the remainder of those 10 that deals with how we should treat one another, uh, the Israelite people should treat one another, which deals with the loving of the neighbor. So therefore, all the law of commandments, that's why the principle, these are principles set forth in these 10 and not only the, remember, okay, slowing it down from these 10 come all those 613 commandments. So all 613 are developed out of these 10. Okay. And all of these 10, all of these 613 commandments of God can be divided up into two realms, the love of God, respect towards God and the love of your neighbor, how you deal and treat other people. Okay. Now that I said that, let me continue on. So where was I? I was dealing with the issue of bearing false witness against the neighbor, the testimony against the neighbor. And that's why I kind of did that little detour because these things are an in indication of lovelessness towards your neighbor. But anyway, continuing on, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay. So now we finished the, the last 10 and notice the nature of the last 10 of the 10th one. The nature of the 10th deals with the heart. It is the only one that really deals with the heart and it is deals with the heart of coveting from which we get jealousy, envy, and unwarranted desire, forbidden desire. And that's the idea of this 10th commandment. It is the law against forbidden desire, forbidden desire against that which belongs to someone else, no matter what, no matter whether it is the wife and, the, and it, I can, I can bring a sermon on this alone because these things, it is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. If she is married, no need of you wanting or wishing you had her. <laughs> and on the other side, if he is married, no need of you wishing and wanting him. But nevertheless, you get the point. Check your heart out. And, and then he, let me just deal with the commentary or his servant, his slave or anything. If it's his property, don't want or covet anything that belongs to anybody else. And that's basically what God is saying. Why? And we can understand the instance of why God is saying these things. When you in the heart begin to covet something, then it moves. This is what James is talking about in chapter one. It begins to move from simply a desire to action. You begin to do things to acquire that. So when you begin to covet in your heart, your neighbor's wife or his property or any of that thing, you begin to do things so that you can acquire it. And the things that you do are evil. 
and you disenfranchise your neighbor, even up to the point where some have killed, killed his neighbor in order to acquire his wife. Ask King David. But anyway, so those are the 10. Now, as we continue on in the commentary, we're coming to an end now. You have to remember, remember the theater of your mind is on. All the while God is speaking these laws from Mount Sinai. What's going on on Mount Sinai? So God is saying, I'm the Lord, your God. <laughs> I can just imagine he had a very deep voice. <laughs> no other gods before me. But anyway, so the, the shaking, the earthquake, the fire, the thunder, the lightning, the mountain burning with flame as God is speaking and people are scared to death while all of this is going on. So now we return back to the environment, what's going on around as the people are listening to God, speaking his commandments. Verse 18, all the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Okay, so now in the midst of all of God's dramatic power on the mountain, the people begin to, they're trembling. And you can imagine that this is when you get the deep butterflies in the stomach, as I said to you guys earlier. So they're shaking and I, and I can imagine people's knee, knees are knocking together. You're scared to death because you don't know what, you know, it's just difficult to understand the feeling that they had. And it kind of brings us to a similar situation in Matthew 17, when Jesus showed forth his true nature. And the Bible said he transformed in the sight of his apostles, Peter, James, and John. And he began to shine with the light like no man could look upon. And all of a sudden Moses and Elijah began to stand there speaking to Jesus concerning the thing that he were to accomplish in just a few days in which he would die on the cross. And Peter, James, and John looking at Jesus not knowing what to do with their faces covered and they're bowed down low and they begin to say in fear, it's good for us to be here. There was a fear that gripped them. But anyway, let's go back. So the people are afraid and then they begin to say unto Moses as they remember God had told them to set bounds at the mountain. He had no, he didn't have to worry about it because the people were not going to break near to see God. They were so afraid. They didn't want to come nowhere near that mountain. And so they began to say unto Moses, I tell you what you draw near unto God and you go up. Let me say it this way into all of that and hear what he has to say. And once you hear what he has to say, come back and bring us and tell us what God said, and we will listen to you. It's comical, isn't it? Because 
What is the problem that Moses has been having with them thus far? They constantly being accusing Moses. Why have you brought us out out of the land of Egypt? Moses, why have you done this? And why have you? And all the while ragging on Moses and you ain't seen nothing yet. This is not even year one. They are going to continue to get on Moses case. Why have you done this? Why did you do this? Why Moses? But now what are they saying? Because they're just afraid for the moment. They are only afraid for the moment. And the same thing for us. There are times when we are afraid for the moment. Certain times we hear the word of God and are afraid for the moment. This is why we should pray. We don't want to worship God with emotion. Why? Emotion wears off. It wears off. But let us say, Lord, your word we have hidden in our heart and what by hiding the word in our heart, making it a part of us. What did the psalmist say? Let the word, let us meditate on the word day and night. And by the word being a part of our innermost part and not simply affecting us for the moment, it keeps us from sinning against God. And it gives us a better response to God a way of life in God's sight at all times. We don't just fear God for the moment, but we live in a fear of God all our days, not because for the moment we are afraid. But anyway, enough of that. So back to the commentary, they say to Moses, we don't want to hear from God because if we endure all of these things that are happening, we are going to die. So this is how we need to see the way that God is showing himself with all of this display is to the point where the people thought if they continue to endure it, they would die. All right. And Moses just simply responds to the people. Don't be afraid. God is coming to you in order to put you to the test. That is that you may know to keep God's commandment. So God is coming to you. Remember I said to you guys earlier concerning chapter 19, you say, why in the world did God have to come to them? Because he wants to instill the fear of him in those people that they may know that our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a God of judgment. Our God is a God of discipline. Our God does not play with you. Even now, there is this sense of God as some old doting grandfather in heaven. People love to say, God is love. God is love. God is love. Yes, he is. But what about the other parts of God? What about the other side? God is not only love. God is a God of he is a God of judgment. He is a God who will put you to death if you approach him wrong. Ask Nadab and Abihu when they approach God with just the wrong kind of fire and he put them to death. He burned them to a crisp. Go to, to the New Testament and dealing with Peter. And Peter asked them, he said, did, did you really sell your property for so much? 
and they lie. And he says, you will be put to death. And they died at the feet of Peter. God is a God of consuming fire. And this is what God wants them to see. He loves them, but he expects obedience. Failure to obey will result in divine judgment. Okay, enough of that. So the people, afraid of all what's going, back, going on, they just simply stood from a distance as Moses himself, even though shaking, the book of Hebrews told us, he still drew near unto God. Let's bring this chapter to a close. 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourself have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it out of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. You shall not go up my steps by up, up, up. You shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. Okay, now let's close the chapter. So God continues to give prohibition to idolatry. And notice, isn't it, isn't it a beautiful thing? It's such a beautiful thing. He's already talked about in the first parts of the commandments. No gods besides me. No idols. No idols concerning idol gods. No idols concerning me. No idols. Notice the very same thing God not only emphasizes. You ask why he emphasizes. Because what we are going to see in the history of the people of Israel, this is the very commandment. Notice what I said, the very commandment that they will break. They will break it over and over. When the nation separates northern Israel called Israel, Samaria, into the south, south Israel called Judah, Jerusalem. When the nation divides, God will send judgment to the nation. He will bring a Syrian judgment because of idolatry. He bring the judgment of the Babylonians at 2 Kings 17, 2 Kings 25. The judgment to the, of the Babylonians because of what? Idolatry. Israel will be ultimately removed and uprooted from the land because this will be the very command that they will break. The command to, uh, to not commit idolatry. God knows everything. Okay. But he, and so he continued on to talk about, and remember, God's of gold, if it doesn't matter. He continued on to talk about the making of the altar. Remember, the altar was this thing to the which they would put their sacrifices on. And so he gave instruction, not uh, a great instruction, great description, but preliminary instruction concerning the altar, the altar where they give the burnt offerings or the peace offerings. And so he says when they would bring the offering to sacrifice sheep or the goat in every place, that altar should be an altar of earth, an altar of earth, an altar of natural stone. Okay, let me, let me talk about this. 
And this part I truly love. This is the part I truly love. Okay, before I get into all of that, in every place that I come, come that I cause my name to be remembered, I will come and bless you. They were they were having an altar where they would come and bring their sacrifices. These are these are national sacrifices, national. So this is the worship of Yahweh on an altar, bring their national sacrifices in certain places, wherever these places where the altar would be. And the altar would be at certain places before the building of the temple by Solomon, the altar will be wherever the tabernacle will be. And remember the tabernacle is a transportable place for worship. So wherever the tabernacle, the altar would be set up there and there and there alone, they would make their sacrifices there. And it would be by there because of their obedience in making their sacrifices at the altar, wherever that tabernacle is set up until Solomon, that God would bless them for their obedience and their sacrifices there, as well as their obedience to God's law. Okay. Now, further instructions concerning this altar, this altar to, is to be made Beautiful. And here's where I fight to preach. I want to preach from the stones of the earth, from natural stones gathered on the earth. So now God is saying that the two things, the natural stones of the earth, you build the altar and in the altar, the altar is not to have elevated steps, elevated steps by which you will walk up steps to go up the altar of God. Now I'm going to deal with this reason first because the, the pagans would often have in their altars, very ornate, ornate altars, very decorated with the stones would be very decorated and the, and the, and the steps they would have in going up the altar. So God is teaching one principle is you will not be like the pagans. This is the idea once again of what holiness sanctifying to be separate from. So as God is saying, you will not have an altar like the pagans. It will not be ornate and it will not have steps. But there is another point that God is talking about here concerning. Note he says concerning the two not only concerning the ornateness about it, he says this for the day that you lay your tool upon the altar, you have profaned the altar slowing down. I know it's been a long time guys, but bear with me. We're at the end already. The altar is profaned. In other words, the altar is not usable. God has ultimately rejected this altar. Why? Notice what he said. The altar, the altar is a place of worship to God. It is a place where they bring their sacrifices to God. It is a place where through the blood, through the blood of these sacrifices, God is accepting the blood of the sacrifices that the nation's sins will be removed. The nation's sin will be removed and the nation is acceptable to God. And so therefore notice, let me break, let me break it down a little bit more. Tell me about those stones. He says those stones 
come from the earth. Who made the earth? God himself. And what did God say about those stones? Don't you put your hand on that stone. This has nothing to do with you. So therefore, take the stones that God made. Take the what? Stones that God made. And on those stones that God made, offer your offering, your sin offerings, your burnt offering. What is God saying? He is simply saying to us, even now, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation, because this can, you know what goes on the altar? Salvation is accomplished. Salvation is the work of God alone. The day you put your hands on it, the day that you have something to do with salvation, the day that you have something to do with yourself being acceptable to God, with your works being acceptable to God, the day that you are involved, you have polluted it completely and it becomes totally unacceptable before God. Or as he says here, the day you lay your tool on my altar, you profaned it and I totally reject your altar. It ain't mine no more. It is not something acceptable by me anymore. So even now he speaks to us in Christ Jesus. It's not something that you do. It is not what you do or how you do or the choices. No, it is in Christ Jesus and in him alone are we acceptable by God. And if like the book of Galatians teaches, you want to be acceptable by God by any other way. What did Paul say? Let him be accursed. Paul said, if you didn't hear me the first time, I said again, if by any way you try to come unto God, except through Jesus, the Messiah, let him be accursed. There is no other gospel. We never lay our tool upon our faith, upon our salvation. We are accepted by God through Christ Jesus alone. And that's the whole reason for the altar of Israel. It allows the people to be acceptable to God, to draw near unto God, to receive cleansing from sin in a substitutionary way by God. Okay. I think you guys got that. And then he simply talks about going up the steps by all going up the altar by the steps. He deals with the principle of cleanliness, the principle of sexual being uh, not having to do with the sexuality as they approach their God. Notice because to come up the steps would allow the nakedness to be seen. So in the worship of God, no sexual perversion whatsoever. Okay. This been a long, long chapter, but let me simply finish it this way. Now we're dealing with the law of Moses. We're dealing with the law of Moses and all the rest of the while, all the rest of the while we're going to be talking about Exodus and everything else will be the law of Moses. We know that the law of Moses is not, uh, uh, it does not pertain to us today. It's not pertaining to us today. Okay. And basically what we do see, let me just talk about 10 commands very quickly. Um, let me wrap it up because I don't want to babble because guys, you can talk about this point that I'm trying to make at length. It could be a discussion within itself. The law of Moses is not applicable to us. Okay. 
But what we do see, even in the Ten Commandments, all of the Ten Commandments did move over into the law of Christ. That's what we have to do today, with the exception of the Sabbath day. And, and we don't worship on any set days. Paul taught that in the book of Romans, chapter 14, and I believe the book of Colossians, chapter 1 or chapter 2. So we don't have any specific days, but most of us do go to church on Sunday because even from the times of the apostles, that's when it was traditional for us on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection for us to go to church. But you can go to church any day that you want to. You can go to church on Wednesday if you want to. However, concerning the law, what we see that Paul says the law is good. The law is good if you use it lawfully. The principles that God is teaching in the law, the principle of righteousness, the principles of holiness. So even though the law of Moses does not pertain to us, the principles of his holy law apply to us today. And that's what we see in the New Testament, in the law of Christ. So the principles of the law still remain. So even with that, let me make my final comment concerning going up unto the altar by steps. Now, what we would simply call that today is going to church. Simply what? Going to church. And notice what he's talking about, a sense of sexuality, sexuality as it is involved in worship. And what, what would be the principle that God is setting forth for us today? When we go to church, when you go to church, it ain't about your behind. This thing about trying to be sexual enticing, sexually attractive and all this stuff is not a proper thing to do. See, I'm applying the principle here and I know I'm long, but let me just simply say what I want to say. The principle of sexuality. Sometimes the preacher go and it's, you get with a pair of tight jeans on and all of that. Man, don't be trying to make people look at you and want you. Do not ascend the altar. You see it now? The sense of sexuality. And then you have the women in the church. What did Paul even say concerning the women in the church in the book of Timothy? He said, don't be trying to wear flashy clothes and all of that and draw attention to yourself. Do not do that. So the whole sense of sex and all of this, trying to look good and, and, and entice sexuality. That's basically what he's saying here. And this is the principle that we can apply even today. Okay. I've been long. Thanks, guys, for bearing with me in uh, the Ten Commandments. And we see that these are just the principle. Remember, the whole idea of Ten Commandments, principle from which God will basically develop the remainder, the covenant laws. OK, but thanks for joining me with that. Join me next time and we'll get into Exodus chapter 21. And we'll just basically continue with God's giving to Moses those covenantal laws. That is the expansion of the continuation of the Ten Commandments, the continuance of the law of Moses. See you then.